If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And I think we absolutely have to go beyond the written and the textual and engage with this oral memories. Because the other point I make in this book is that these women and men may have been non-literate, but they're intensely literary, for they have grown up on the robust oral culture of their native Punjab, and it's absolutely essential to engage with this literature. That was Shantanu Das talking about the sources through which we view the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now before we begin, I'd like to remind you about our new online feature, the library. If you're a subscriber to BBC History magazine, in print or in digital, through the Apple Store or Google Play, then this is a place where you can now access a 10-year archive of magazine content for free, as well as a number of our podcasts that are no longer available elsewhere. Head to historyextra.com forward slash the hyphen library to access this resource. Now, over the course of the past few years, a great deal of attention has been placed on the First World War, but not a huge amount of that 
has covered the story of the many Indian soldiers and civilians who participated in the conflict. Well, in today's episode, we'll be exploring that story with Shantanu Das, Professor of English Literature at King's College London, and the author of a new book, India, Empire and First World War Culture. Our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Shantanu a little while back at King's College London, and here's how their conversation went. So your book is an exploration of the culture and the objects that surround Indian involvement in the First World War. Um, And perhaps we could start by talking through um, some of the variety of the sources you looked at. Absolutely. During the First World War, one and a half million men from undivided India, including almost 800,000 combatants and 600,000 non-combatants, and of them over a million served abroad from Europe and Mesopotamia to East Africa, China, Gallipoli, Persia, Palestine, Egypt, and Sinai. And to follow the Indian sepoy, which was what the infantryman was known as, is to learn about the global nature of the war. And I think we often tend to forget that these men did not just fight or served as laborers, but lived, loved, felt dawn, and saw sunset glow. They saw new lands, they met new people for a whole world of cultural encounters was opening up with the local men, women, children. And what I wanted to capture in this book and what I wanted to do in this book is to get beyond the names of battlefields and medals and memorials and instead try to understand the texture of the experience the world of feeling, or what I call the echoes of the sepoy heart, in battlefields, behind the front lines, in hospitals, and prisoner of war camps. And I realized that a literary and cultural history was possibly the most appropriate way of understanding this underworld of feeling. But then how do you recover the story of a group of people, most of whom did not know how to read or write and did not leave a superabundance of letters, memoirs, poetry that formed the cornerstone of European war writing. And I realized that I needed to go beyond the written text. And I started looking at artifacts, French objects, photographs, sketches, paintings, sound recordings, rumors, posters, folk songs, and also different forms of literature written often by non-combatants at the time, poetry, fiction, short story, which try to capture that experience. For I think in a world of fugitive fragments, literature fills in the gaps of history. So in many ways, the book is the first cultural and literary study which excavates the story of the Sepoy in the First World War through a diverse range or through a more heterogeneous range of material than previously available. Mm-hmm. So you, you make a point that even if you can find these sources, the, the letters, the sound recordings that you've looked at, the objects, um, it's often the case that we might not know as much about the individuals as we would about um, their European counterparts. Can you talk about the specific challenges of when, when trying to find these objects or these archival um, subjects? I think one of the specific challenges is that there is a paucity of sources. And as a result, one 
has to work not just harder, but think in different ways, which is why I moved beyond just the written word and the official archival record into more unconventional archives and put these various things, what I call objects, images, words and music in dialogue with each other in order to unwrap the story. In India or Pakistan, in South Asia, even today, there isn't something like the Imperial War Museum or the Australian War Memorial because after the war, no space was created, either physical or intellectual or cultural, to commemorate the war. And this is because the war was followed by the great betrayal. Undivided India, instead of getting the dominion status as people expected for the war, instead got Amritsar massacre in 1919. And as a result, the nationalist movement completely took over and these imperial soldiers who were fighting for the wrong side, as it were, they got almost airbrushed out of history, mm-hmm. out of the nationalist history. But then amnesia is not absence. Memories exist privately, stubbornly, silently. For example, in 2005, I visited a small museum in the former French colony of Chandunagur, just outside Kolkata, and I found a pair of bloodstained glasses belonging to Jogen Sen. And, and then in England, once I came back to England, further research revealed that Jogen Sen was the only non-white member of the Leeds Pals Battalion. Or more recently in 2014, I made a trip to a recruitment village in Bonsi, a heavily recruited Rajput village during the war in what is today Haryana, in order to interview the descendants of Punjabi veterans. And suddenly a whole crowd of people turned up with this fund of stories and souvenirs belonging to their grandfathers and great uncles who had served in the war. Cigarette cases given as Christmas gifts in 1914, medals, coins, photographs, trinkets. The whole air was thick with memories. And then in Berlin, in the sound archive, I came across this desolate voice of Mal Singh pining to go back home. One of the most haunting testimonies of the First World War by anyone. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I think we're, we're hopefully going to talk about those the sound recordings, one or two of them in a little while. But I wonder if we could first talk about... Um, India's initial involvement in the war and um, the kind of imperial imperative that came with that and maybe the hopes of some that this would lead to to self-governance. India joined the war on August 4th, 1914, by dint of being part of the British Empire. The Indian leaders, they were not even consulted. But having said that, there was widespread support for the war across the country. The native princes who ruled one third of the country in partnership with the Raj almost started competing with each other with extravagant offers of men, money, material. But what is surprising is that the main national parties, including the Indian National Congress, pledged unconditional support. Because many of these leaders thought that India's war services would be rewarded with the granting of the dominion status, 
at that time, even Gandhi was asking for dominion status rather than full independence. And in the summer of 1918, Gandhi threw himself wholeheartedly almost into the recruitment process, going from village to village in Gujarat and Bihar. And at one point, in one of the speeches, he says, the gateway to our freedom is situated on the French soil. If we could but crowd the battlefields of France with an indomitable army of home rulers fighting for victory, it will also be a fight for our own cause. And in another speech, he says, we should send our men to France and Mesopotamia. We are not entitled to demand Shoraj or self-rule till we come forward to enlist in the army. And, you know, this is the archetypal pacifist Doen. This is the father of Indian nationalism. And in 1918, he was championing for recruitment for the war and for empire. Can we talk a little about how the army was structured in terms of racialized <laughs> attitudes? Because I thought um, that that was a really difficult thing to perhaps understand. What can you tell us about recruitment tactics, which varied from region to region? The soldiers are often turned into loyalist imperial heroes or colonial cannon fodder, or more recently, into ruthless mercenaries. And what is forgotten, I think, in each of these cases is their humanity. And I insist that we need to find a more nuanced framework in order to understand their inner worlds. Money, of course, was central, but it was fused and confused with a host of other issues, such as social aspirations, family and community traditions, land grants, masculinity, and also a residual sense of izzat or honor. For in rural areas of Punjab, a military cross, or even a lesser award, held a certain prestige that went beyond just money. In 1914, India had the largest voluntary army in the world, though I think a big question mark hangs over the word voluntary. Because in spite of India's vast population, the soldiers were recruited from a narrow geographical and ethnic pool, comprising largely the peasant warrior classes, or so-called martial races, who were spread across northern and central India, the northwest frontier province, as well as the kingdom of Nepal. The martial races theory was a combination of shrewd political calculation, indigenous notions of caste, and also imported social Darwinism, and it formed the backbone of the British army. And it deemed that certain ethnic groups, such as Pathans, Dogras, Jats, Garwalis, and Gurkhas, were naturally more warlike than others. These communities were often quite depoliticized with low literacy rates, and hence traditionally loyal to the British Raj and least likely to challenge them. Very different from the politically active and articulate Bengalis who were conveniently cast as effeminate and barred from joining the army. Of its almost one and a half million recruits, the majority came from Punjab, now spread across both India and Pakistan. And it saw some of the most intense recruitment campaign. And initially it was through enticement to different awards or land grants, but soon coercion kicked in. 
from 1917. For example, a quota was sent, a set up. Particular villages had to recruit a certain number of men. And if the village failed to recruit those men, then suddenly it would find that the water connection the ca- of the canal irrigation system had been cut off, for example, in Multan. Or in 1918, there was the use of a lot of force. For example, men began to be bought and sold. Women were kidnapped so that the men would be almost forced to report and then get recruited. And consequently, rates of desertion from the local recruiting centers also shot up. Mm-hmm. And this is a side that is not highlighted at all when we talk about the Indian sepoys and the First World War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Could you talk a little bit about how Indian soldiers were viewed by European soldiers, by European forces, um, because it, it was quite varied, wasn't it, between the British um, people, who were, uh, Indians who were fighting for British forces, for French forces. How did that differ? I think European perceptions of, of the soldiers from undivided India, they varied a lot across nationalities, the French and the British. Uh, um, and I think when the Indian sepoys first arrived at Marseille, I think they were almost ambushed by what I call the colonial paparazzi. They were endlessly photographed, painted, sketched, uh, and everyone wanted to be almost kind of friends with them or even kind of touch them. And the way they were, and they were endlessly reported in the media. And I think these media representations, they lurch between a celebration of gallantry on one hand and brutality on the other. I think there is a central tension between the representation of the Indians as these imperial heroes on one hand and these colonial brutes on the other. For example, the Gurkhas are often shown like chopping off heads with their knives. I'll just read out a small caption from a report from the War Illustrated on 7th November 1914. 
With cat-like noiselessness, the Gurkha, knife in hand or in teeth, can glide to the grass until he's close to the isolated outpost and then comes the fatal throw. So here we have imperial heroism tipping over to colonial brutality. In the same year, Sigmund Freud, the psychologist in Thoughts for the Times on War and Death writes, war strips us of later accretions of civilization. We ourselves are, like the primeval man, a gang of murderers. Now, as European soldiers themselves descended to the level of the primal man or murderer, I wonder whether this inner paranoid acknowledgement of barbarity being projected onto the racial other or the Indians, where European masculinity inscribes both its anxieties and its fantasies so that the Indian soldier becomes both the imperial warrior and the colonial brute. But I think often in the actual letters and diaries of the officers who commanded the Indians, the descriptions are far more nuanced, far cannier, often warm, and very different from the media representations of the Indians. So I think it's essential, absolutely essential, not to just say that everyone went for Orientalism. There's a very wide spectrum. Many of the British officers had very precise, exact, and canny descriptions of their men, which differed a lot from the media representations. And I'll just read maybe one from a diary, so as to give the other side. This is from the diary of an officer called Wade, uh, written on uh, board a ship, H.S. Takada. And I'll just write, uh, I'll just read. Jigger, the Indian ward boy with the Turkish prisoners of war, is a real joy. He's very fat, with a huge smile on his face, and very black. He's serious when he's gesticulating wildly with Johnny Turk, trying to find out what he wants. But soon his face lights up and he darts off laughing to himself. So on one hand, there is racism, you know, very fat, very black. At the same time, he's talking about an individual rather than a generic. And there is often a certain warmth for the Indian soldiers. And that is where the problem comes. Because there is, of course, this racist condescension. But it is not unmixed with a certain affection and warmth, however condescending it may be. And often there are accounts when the racism is absent and there are pockets of intimacy and emotion between the British officer and the Indian soldier. But I regret to say that in 10 years of my research, I've come across countless examples of Indian sepoys risking their lives to save the British officers, but I have not come across a single example of a British officer risking his life to save an Indian sepoy. Um, your book doesn't just look at the men who were at war, though. It looks at the, the women and children, the people who remained on the, on the home front, the Indian home front. And I wondered if we could talk about um, the impact of the war on, on various lives, particularly in, in the Punjab, in, in that region. In many ways, I wanted the book to tell the story of the Indian sepoy or infantryman through a more diverse collection of sources than hitherto available. At the same time, I also wanted the book to look beyond the story of the sepoy, to embed the conflict in the larger socio-historical and cultural processes in India. 
For example, from the heated debates about what India's war participation might mean for its political future, to the recruitment speeches of Mahatma Gandhi, or from photographs, testimonies, and voice recordings of the soldiers in various prisoner of our camps, to women's folk songs in Punjab, from fictional representations to the imagining of a post-war world by intellectuals such as Muhammad Iqbal or Rabindranath Tagore, the country's involvement in the war, the book claims, produced a distinct and recognizable culture. Because the war is not combat. I think one of the basic points of the book is that we need to reconceptualize the idea of war itself and move from combat to conflict, one that involves combatants and civilians, men, women, and children. And some of the most heartbreaking findings were the folk songs sung by women when their men left home. In many ways, these folk songs, which have survived in popular memory, are the most emotionally charged as well as the most politically radical of the protests because these women, they're absolutely unconditional in their denunciation of the war. And I'll just quote a few of these lines. Go slowly, O train, go slowly. My husband is going to Basra. He wears a tasser shirt. Go slowly, O train, go slowly. You carry a passenger bound for Basra. And from there we have these angry protests. May you never be enlisted, you who leaves me behind at my parents' house before we have even lived together. Or the one I find particularly heartbreaking, and it is also remarkable in its open denunciation of the war. I quote, War destroys towns and ports. It destroys huts. I shed tears. Come and speak to me. All birds, all smiles have vanished and the boats sunk. Graves devour our flesh and blood. And these are some of the most kind of powerful protests. And it's only in recent years that we have managed to unearth them. And in 2014, we had some of these, some of the tunes had survived. So we had them recorded so that we can hear maybe not the original one, but some recordings from 2014 of these songs. These protests, they are not just anti-war, but they can also be anti-European. And I again quote, The war paints me like hot sand in a cauldron. Every household now has widows. Married men win battles. Tell me, O Firangi, meaning foreigner, where is that written? Take the bachelors to war, then victory will be yours. In a way, they are saying that do not take our husbands, take the single men away to war. It's so poignant and the sophistication of these folk songs and I think we absolutely have to go beyond the written and the textual and engage with these oral memories. Because the other point I make in this book is that these women and men may have been non-literate, but they're intensely literary. For they have grown up on the robust oral culture of their native Punjab. And it's absolutely essential to engage with this literature. Can we talk then perhaps about what you may have found with um, an event? I think you talk about, for instance, 
some of the tip boys interacting with their uh, their European mothers in quotation marks and how that event might have been represented differently by the Sepoys and by European sources. Mm. When we think of India and the First World War, we often think just in terms of battles. But of course, behind the front, a whole range of cultural encounters was opening up between these Indian Sepoys and the local men and women from fleeting glimpses of people at towns, fields and markets to sustained relationships with the people these young soldiers billeted with. Some sepoys picked up French, including the Picard dialect. And in November 1915, the Indian Soldiers Fund supplied 30,000 Hindustani French phrase books so that they could communicate more easily. No country is like the country of France, one soldier wrote back, while another firmly concluded that after seeing France, I quote, there's no need to see England. France is often compared to paradise and fairyland. We have seen, uh, we have seen things that our eyes have never dreamt of seeing. But I think often with time, this response is slowly wore off. Everything from farming methods to manners and gestures to issues such as gender, education, and dignity of labor come up for comment. And I again quote a letter from an Indian sepoy. In Europe, sweepers, chamars, bhatias, nabobs, and rajas are all one and sympathize with each other. Here, labor is not a disgrace, but a glory. Inaccurate this man may have been, but not insular as fresh worlds seem to be opening up in front of their eyes. But I think some of, and I think with time, love blossomed. Indeed, there were often these romantic letters exchanged between some of the local women and the sepoys, so that the sepoys were often moved so as to prevent these relationships from taking place because there is this idea of miscegenation at that time. And in fact, one such affair happened in my own family. One of my great uncles, Dr. Prashant Kumar Guho, he served as a doctor in France and even got engaged with a French girl. But being a nationalist after the war, he came back to India. And when he got married in India, this French lady sent some gifts for the new bride. I think some of the most moving relationships occurred between the Indian sepoys and elderly French women who, had, who may have lost their sons or whose sons might have been away. And these women were often referred to as French mothers by the Indian sepoys. And I'll read one letter. The house in which I was billeted was the house of a well-to-do man, but the only occupant was the lady of advanced years. Her three sons had gone to the war. One had been killed, another had been wounded and was in hospital, and the third at the time was in the trenches. During the whole three months, I never saw this old lady sitting idle, though she belonged to a high family. Indeed, during the whole three months, she ministered to me to such an extent that I cannot adequately describe her kindness. Of her own free will, she washed my clothes, arranged my bed, polished my boots for three months. When we had to leave that village, this old lady wept on my shoulder. And I'd say affection, maternity, bereavement and loneliness are all combined. It was not in the world of casual sex and romance, but in this deeper emotional diets between these young sepoys 
and the elderly often bereaved French women that some of the most fruitful Indo-European encounters took place. Uh, as well as letters, you mentioned um, the the source of sound and, and you mentioned that it's the Royal Prussian Phonographic Commission um, recorded approximately 2,000 recordings, was it? Um, made in German prisoner of war camps. Um, I believe we're going to listen to one uh, now. Could you tell us about what we're just going to listen to? Some of the most powerful testimonies to have emerged in recent years are this extraordinary collection of sound recordings. And they were recorded by the Royal Prussian Phonographic Commission between 29th December 1915 and 19th December 1918. And of this almost 2,000 sound recordings, around 300 belong to the South Asian soldiers and Laskers who were held. And I think they are some of the most moving things I've heard. This meant they were often asked to read a poem or narrate a story or sing a song. And they were recorded. I think the most poignant testimony, I'd call it, I'd come across while doing my research is actually a song. And it was a song that was recorded on 6th June 1916 by a 23-year-old Gurkha Sipoy called Jas Bahadur just a few months before his death. And I know that because we came across his gravestone in the prisoner of war camp in Germany. And this is the song. I'll just maybe try to translate a few lines from this song. With the rising of the Sisai River, I came, carried in its bubbling flow. We arrived in the country, Germany, at the orders of the British. Listen, oh listen, gold-wearing sister, the heart cries sobbing, the bubbling of the water, the restlessness of the heart. How many days will it take to console myself? Listen, oh listen. And finally, he goes on to say, and this is so moving. I don't want to stay in a European country. Please send me to India. 
Surviving brings no progress. Dying brings no knowledge. Bodies must go, and when mind goes, if you wash it, how much can it be washed? And if you listen to the recording, the voice rises and falls and pauses, and there's a certain intensity to the recording, as if there's almost there's almost a compulsive intensity, as if he knew that he was going to die, and he had to tell his story. And as we listen, the voice rises and falls, high-pitched, desolate, undeterred. And I think traumatized by his experiences and perhaps haunted by the knowledge of his approaching death, Jaz Bahadur turns an ethnological experiment, which basically what the sound recordings were, into one of the most powerful examples of life writing or testimony. And in a way, I think like Wilfred Owen or Siegfried Sassoon, he's a poet par excellence because he bears emotional testimony to the war, history, the whole story of his capture and starvation. It's recorded as a structure of feeling. And the lyricism is, and the lyrics, they are also extremely intricate, like Panico, Bulbul, Emonko, Chulbul. There's a lot of alliteration, a lot of assonance. And it's absolutely essential that we pay more intricate attention to the sounds, the way he tells rather than just what he tells. What would you like to see in terms of a greater recognition of the colonial contribution or this widening perhaps of looking at the various testimonies in the history? I think one of the most important legacies of this centennial commemoration of the war would be the greater recognition of the contribution of the colonial troops, uh, particularly the non-white colonial troops. And for that to do it properly, I think we need to think beyond the box and absolutely move beyond just archival records or move beyond conventional archives and military documents into other things, photographs, sound recordings, images, objects, and perhaps most importantly, oral testimonies. In recent years, I think the First World War is being increasingly reinvented as the grand stage to play the anthem of multiculturalism, but often in the service of the British nation. For example, Baroness Aida Varzi, who was leading the Commonwealth Commemoration, wrote in 2014, and I quote, Our boys were not just Tommies, they were Tariks and Tajindas too. They came from many countries and held many different faiths. One million Indian soldiers fighting and dying for our country. Now, given the history of marginalization, I think this is a very important recognition. But at the same time, I think it's a sanitization of war memory. For I think the reality was different. Tariq and Tajinder did not know for what or for whom they were fighting. Often it was just for money. Secondly, Tariq was always inferior in rank to Tommy and often faced institutional racism. So it's not a case of Tommy and Tariq always holding hands across the imperial seas. For example, there were fences around the Brighton Pavilion so that the Indian sepoys could not interact with the local people. And I think in order to have a truly robust multicultural history, 
We need to look at these histories squarely in the eye and walk through them rather than try to brush them under the carpet. In recent years, the Indian Sepoy or the African Askari is routinely being turned into a colonial hero as if gallantry is the only ticket to remembrance. Of course, there were very gallant men like Khudadat Khan who won the Victoria Cross, but most Sepoys like English Tommies shivered like leaves and shat in their trousers as shells burst near them. And like Wilfred Owen, they would have said, I guess, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, that it is not sweet to die for one's country, let alone empire. They were only too human in inhuman circumstances. And I think we need to recognize this vulnerability rather than turning them into colonial heroes in order to recover their experiences. It is not just enough to say, let's commemorate, but how we remember, what we remember, and who we remember. That was Shantanu Das. India, Empire and First World War Culture is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. And don't forget you can read much more about the First World War at our website, historyextra.com. And that is about all for today's episode. But we will return on New Year's Eve when Nick Barrett will be exploring a dramatic medieval struggle for the English crown. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.